G'day, it's Jack Whelan again here, uh, barrister, uh, mediator, and I'm again on the sunny central coast for Separation Guide podcast number two, and with the offices of Albury Brown, and I'm joined by Anna Crookshank, uh, Managing Director of Albury Brown. G'day, Anna. Hi, how are you, Jack? Terrific, terrific. Thanks again for joining us, and thank you very much for your firm being a part of the Separation Guide network on the central coast. It's terrific. It's our pleasure, and we're very excited to be involved. We think that it is such an innovative service to be able to offer the community and um, our fellow law clients. Thanks, and it is. That's terrific. And and uh, and again, uh, your firm's reputation is one of uh, having long long relationships with, with clients, long and trusted relationships, and uh, that's what Separation Guide is about as well. It's about trust. Uh, and also joining us is Kate uh, O'Grady. Um, Kate is the team leader of Matters Family Law at um, Aubrey Brown. Kate, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome, Jack. Nice to meet you. And, and you as well, and you as well. All right, so we've got a fairly profound question before us, uh, friends, and um Kate or, or, or Anna, whoever wants to go first, certainly can. The question is, from your perspective as expert family lawyers, how do people divorce or separate well? What do they need to do in order to achieve that? I might jump in, Anna, if that's okay with you. Um, it's actually an excellent question and I think it's one that after being in practice for as long as I have, I'm starting to turn my mind to more regularly. And I think it's about the the profession as a whole and certainly clients changing our mindset and the way that we approach family law matters Um, and just thinking about the process a little differently. For too long, I think there's been a focus on litigation and an adversarial process where people come in and put their gloves on and come in swinging and we've seen the effect of that on families and on clients and particularly the cost and the emotional cost for clients. So I think approaching it from the outset with a with a different mindset of how can we sort this out and even if that means a compromise or accepting things that might not be exactly what the parties want, um, but looking at ways to resolve it in a cost-effective way but also a, in a holistic way, hmm. um, I think is, is a great start. How entrenched, Kate, do you think is that mindset um, in the family law uh, field that uh, mindset, and you see a lot of it in, in advertising, the, the whole kind of we fight um, proposition. Plainly, sometimes you have to have a fight, um, sometimes you don't. Uh, one of the implications of starting from that point of view is that you, you are in an escalation. Um, so whilst it's plainly not a homogenous sector and circumstances very different, how prevalent do you think that adversarial mindset is? Um, I think, unfortunately, it is very prevalent. There has been a shift, certainly, with alternative dispute resolution becoming more popular and pushes by the court to to force people into, into mediation and alternative dispute resolution. It is changing, but it's still a slow change, and I think we've still got a long way to go. And I think lawyers have an important role to play in that process because often we are the first point of call for clients, and if we approach a matter in a completely litigious and adversarial way, I think we're doing our clients into service. Okay. Um, and what can be the consequences from your experience of, of approaching things in your observations in approaching things uh, from the adversarial point of view? What can be the, the consequences for uh, clients? 
Look, one of the biggest and um, most obvious consequences is the cost element. Often in family law, people don't have a lot of money in the pool to be arguing and spending it on legal fees is not in the best interests of either of them or their family. But there's also a huge emotional toll that can flow from taking an adversarial approach and that emotional toll can um, have long-lasting effects on the family dynamic and the relationship between the parties, um, particularly where there are children involved. So looking at alternative ways to come to a resolution um, is really important to assist people with that long-term relationship aspect that's often very important in family law separations. You must have seen examples of, say, pool of assets that may have been used. I've seen an example recently that pool of assets was a little over a million dollars with fees, legal fees also getting into the six figure mm, Absolutely. You must see that from time to time. Oh, look, we do. And, um, you know, we often see people come in with a pool of assets of um, $100,000. And for them, um, being able to move forward with their life and their relationship, it's really important that that pool of assets is split between them with integrity and in a fair and equitable way. And it's heartbreaking to see so much of it's been on legal fees. Mm. Uh, as, as lawyers, you'll be bound by your instructions. Um, plainly, in this environment, often people uh, can be thinking straight. Sometimes they can be thinking not so straight. Uh, in circumstances where you might detect that it may not be in someone's best interest, for example, uh, to really escalate, um, how do you approach that given the clients at that moment, their particular mindset. Mm. I mean, each case is different and I mm. think part of our job is to assess where clients are at in their particular stage of the separation journey, mm. including their emotional mindset mm. and making referrals to um third parties such as counsellors or psychologists when you need to if you think that people need assistance before they can progress because the reality is is that some people are just simply not in a position to be able to progress the matter forward until they get some assistance to deal with the breakdown of the relationship Um, and it can be really beneficial to refer them out at an early stage to get that help before they go ahead so that they can come into it with a clearer mindset but also it's, it's our job to be able to identify whether their proposal is realistic Um, or what the motivation might be behind it. And unfortunately, due to the nature of a lot of the separations, people approach it from a position of hurt, they're betrayed, you know, they feel let down by the other person or they they might be angry and they might want to try and hurt the other person or seek revenge. And unfortunately, none of those things will end well for for either party um, if the matter progresses in that way. So we have a duty to our clients, I think, to reality test their proposal. Um, and to give them realistic advice about what's likely to happen, what their entitlements are. There's a lot of lawyers out there that will say, you're entitled to 75%, 80%, and they, off they go to court, um, only to be told by the judge that they're entitled to 50, 50%. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd hate to be the lawyer in that situation when the client's looking at you from the bar table having just spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to get to a stage where they're being told that, that their proposal is unrealistic. So whilst, yes, we're bound to follow the client's instructions to a certain extent, it's also our job to make sure that they're 
reality testing their proposals, they're given clear and accurate advice and pursuing options to resolve the matter without litigation I think is really important. In respect of, um, and Tash just mentioned this idea of reality testing, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people will not be uh, familiar with that. Can you explain um, what that is? Sure, Jack. So reality testing is looking at in real life whether the proposal that parties understand they're agreeing to can actually be put into effect. So an example would be um, one party agreeing to buy the other party out of the marital property, but if they can't refinance the loan and borrow the money because they don't have the income to support the loan application, that agreement's going to fail when they move to executing it. So it's really important when the parties are looking at how they might move forward that they're getting really good advice as to the reality of their ability to make that agreement come into force. And that's a reality testing of, of options and of advice and helping people to reality test their own um, thought processes, their own decisions. That's something which uh, presumably is a, is a tool of trade for yourselves here at Aubrey Brown. Absolutely. We see that as a fundamental part of what we um, assist our clients with, taking them through the, the um, way in which they're going to need to manage the agreement before the agreement's actually finalised between the parties. I suppose also, uh, Kate, because you know, most of us aren't legally trained, or many people aren't legally trained, um, but there's plenty of bush lawyers out there and plenty, plenty of people who've gone through the experience. And so it seems to me that it's often the case that uh, people can be labouring under misapprehensions. Yes, you will get 80% of the good You've got the kids, so you automatically get another 10%. Well, well, my friend got 70%. All of these sorts of, this sort of folklore and, and urban myths and, and so forth, how, when you're first meeting with people, how much time can be spent on dispelling those sorts of myths? It seems to me there must be an element of education absolutely, as well as advising. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, initially I think it's really important to give people the chance to be heard so that they feel like they've had the opportunity mm. to tell their story. I'm, I'm not someone that would rush someone through an initial conference, um, so I let them tell their story and let them, you know, get the emotion out because it is a really emotional process yeah, yeah. Um, and often we, we try and put them into a legal box where we say that's not relevant but to them it is it is really relevant what's happened and how the relationship has broken down but then once they've had the opportunity to to tell their story and to share how they're feeling then the next stage is then giving them realistic advice and dispelling some of those myths that they might have heard about what friends might have been through or what family members have it's often, mm. you know, friends and family in the background that are pushing them, mm. you know, she cheated or he cheated, so you should go for everything and um, those really cutthroat approaches to it is often people in the background. And yeah. if, if you can try and separate people from those myths and from the external pressures, it can be really helpful to try and get them to focus on a, yeah. on a realistic approach to it. And I think it's really important to recognise that every um, case turns on its own facts. Mm -hmm. Every case is different and and things can make a huge difference in terms of what 
people are entitled to or how people might move forward. So there is a danger in um, clients putting too much into advice that they get from people based on other people's experiences mm. because those little nuances in terms of what have happened can make a really big difference to how things might move forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, Emma, first you and then to Kate with a with the inverse of my question. Uh, and from your perspective, from say start to finish, um, as best as you can with all of your expertise, what is a separation or divorce which goes well? What does that look like? Well, what are the elements of that? And then to you, Kate, what are the elements of a separation or divorce going off the rails? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with how how I, if you like, for want of a better term, a well-done separation or divorce actually takes place. Obviously, there are externalities. Mm-hmm. depends on, on the circumstances. But assume for a moment that the circumstances are such that it could go well. Mm-hmm. What, what are the elements of it going well? Look, I think that the first very important element is that both of the parties have realistic expectations. Both of the parties have managed the emotional aspect of the separation so that they're able to explore a way forward. Um, I think that both of the parties maintaining an element of respect for each other and a desire to have a relationship past the separation issues um, being sorted out, those things all assist with the parties being able to communicate in a respectful way and in um, a way where they're realistic about what each of them is entitled to and how it moves forward. I think that communication is the number one element that drives whether a um, separation is dealt with in a sensible way that gets the best outcome for the parties or whether it goes off the rails. And ideally, if the parties can come to an agreement themselves, I feel that they walk away with a bit more acceptance of the outcome Mm -hmm. than the alternative, which is having a judge impose something on them that, um, you know, neither party is happy with at the end of the day. Is that something that you think people fully understand? what it's actually like that moment when you enter a courtroom. Absolutely not. Even as lawyers going into the witness box, it's a terrifying um, prospect. Um, I think that that's why so many matters settle on the day, um, on the courtroom steps, because that's when the reality of it all really hits. Uh, The concept of being cross-examined by um, barristers and in having your credibility challenged. I don't think people really understand it until they're about to step into that situation, just how traumatic and emotional that experience can be. Mm. Um, Kate, that's a a good lead into your part of the question. Um, What does this going pear shape look like from your perspective? Yeah, well, just leading on from what Anna said, something that I often um, say to clients when they 
tell me that they want to go to a final hearing or they want to they want a judge to decide is that it's very hard to ever come back from cross-examination. If your ex-partner has been in the witness box and your barrister has completely destroyed their credibility and put every single issue, you know, and, and, and tried to attack them and you then have to try and co-parent with that person after that day, it's almost impossible. It's very hard to try and salvage a co-parenting relationship after that point. So... I try and really encourage people to avoid that where you can. Mm. Obviously, sometimes you can't do that and you do need a judge to decide. Mm. Um, But I think often matters go off the rails um, quite early on and I think one of the biggest problems is people not getting good legal advice or getting unrealistic legal advice um, that can then steer them on a path towards litigation too early. I know that there are a lot of lawyers that will just, as a matter of course, commence proceedings without even trying to exchange disclosure or trying to engage in mediation or trying to resolve it between the parties. They'll just file the application with the court straight away. Mm. And I, I just don't think that that's assisting. The courts are already completely under-resourced and overwhelmed, so I think we need to look at, at different models. So the, the key things that, that cause matters to go off the rails, in my view, are where parties approach it with a really entrenched view of um, fighting, so they're coming with, with an agenda, so they want to hurt the other person or they, they feel hurt or betrayed, mm. and it's that that not being managed from the breakdown of the relationship, those emotional um, aspects not being managed, not getting proper legal advice, mm. um, not being open with their communication. What Anna said earlier, communication is key. So if you try and hide things, if you if you don't make full disclosure, if you try and hide assets, if you try and hide money, or if you try and cover up things that have happened with the kids, it will come out eventually. It will impact your credibility. It draws the matter out. It adds to the costs, and it will create a level of mistrust that that makes it hard for the other person to then engaged in the negotiation or reach an agreement. So I think having clear communication, being open and honest, you know, in terms of disclosure, getting good legal advice, engaging in alternative dispute resolution and trying to reach an agreement, um, it's it's very hard for parties to try and live with um, an order made by a judge. The judge doesn't know you and your family. The judge doesn't know the intricacies of the way that your family works, your routine, even in the way that your lawyer does. Um, and often parties end up with orders that are completely unworkable. So if they're actually involved in the process of, of negotiating that agreement themselves and have had some involvement in saying, this is what I want and this is why, it's always going to be so much better at the end of the day for them and their children if they've been involved in that. Mm. So it's really, in part, it's a design question, isn't it? It's you can, with your partner in the right environment or your ex-partner, kind of design the next stage of your life or someone else can do it for you. Absolutely. Yeah, and plainly in some circumstances you might need someone else to do mm. it for you, but because, you know, the reality is that um, that if we can alter things ourselves, they're more likely to bind I suppose that's one of the benefits of, of settling um, before you end up in court. Just on this point of escalation, a question both uh, to you both, Anna and Kate. Um, what would be a typical reaction to a, in the scenario which you just referenced, Kate, a letter being fired off early, um, seeking something which could have been sought perhaps in conversation? I'm talking here about the potential for an, escal- an escalation cycle to be commenced 
and the unintended consequences mm. of of you know that initial communication not being right. Mm. Well, often clients come in having that was, received... a, leading, that was a leading question. Well, often clients come in having received a letter from a lawyer. Yeah. A, that they don't understand, mm. but B, that they've already got their backup about and has, has put them on a particular course of action, which could have been easily avoided if those parties had just simply had a conversation or if the lawyer had taken a different approach in the way that they write. So often the first letter, the first letter is so important and it, it should be about trying to um, engage the other party in, an, in a negotiation. It shouldn't be about starting a war with that first letter. You don't want to try and frighten someone or try and get their back up because that's not going to help resolve the dispute and too often that's what happens. And I think if people don't understand they see a lawyer's name and and they they automatically think you know that they're they're in a war and they have to fight and that's the response so okay. they they come back fighting. Okay, so you end up with reciprocity. Yeah, and I think that um, as a profession, we as lawyers need to be really really conscious of the power of language and the power of words and um, be really responsible with how we use them because communicating in a really legalistic way can have unintended consequences and can derail a matter that otherwise might have been easily resolved with um, some communication between the parties. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen? Look, it happens all the time and it happens not just in a family law context but in all of the areas of law that we practice where the first part of um, speaking to our clients when we receive some correspondence involves now I want you to look past the tone of the correspondence let's have a look at what they're actually communicating to us that's the the conversation I have day in and day out with clients because you know they will just get offended they don't understand the legal principles they don't understand the offer but they understand that somebody is being disrespectful um, to them and Mm -hmm. and as Kate said they want to fight back when um, sometimes if you can move past that and sometimes I'll pick up the phone and say to the other practitioner come on can we just back this off a bit Um, because Mm. we've got a real chance here to sort this out and make a real difference for these people. Mm. And do you think the fraternity of uh, legal practitioners who are of that mindset, um, do you think that fraternity is growing? Look, I think certainly as a profession, I'm seeing a huge shift Mm. towards um, non-adversarial resolution Mm. of disputes and a huge shift towards using alternative dispute resolution processes um, early on in matters to try and um, move things forward. We regularly encourage our clients where it's appropriate to just sit around the table with the lawyers and let's just all have a chat. Um, in respect of um, escalation and, and avoiding that or managing that, it seems to me, Anna, that there's a lot of uh, tradecraft in that for lawyers because obviously you want to give strong representation, um, but the question is at what point is that strong representation in or not in the client's interest? And so a lot turns on that. What That's are, right. What are your comments on that? Look, I think that um, you, your client needs to feel that 
you are there with them, that you are there to support them and you're there to represent their best interests. I think that the starting point for us is managing our clients' expectations so that our clients have realistic expectations of what can and can't be achieved or what they're entitled to. And if we're managing our clients' expectations well and also managing ourselves to try not to get caught up in the drama um, because often when you're clients really emotional we feel a strong attachment to them and we really feel for what they're experiencing so um, I think we need to manage ourselves around being the sense the voice of reason um, and and being able to guide our clients but also we can communicate professionally we can communicate strongly on what's important but we can do it in such a way so that it's not accusatory it's not disrespectful um, and it's not derogatory to the other party Okay. Um, I agree exactly with what Anna said. I think it's it's really important for us to to support clients, um, to listen to them, to guide them through the process, to make sure they understand the process and to explain things in a way that they can understand. Um, and I think that's that's a, that's a key issue. And I often say to clients, it's almost like I'm trying to teach them another language because when when you know the law, it's like I know French and they don't. So I have to try and break it down and explain it in a way that's really easy for them to understand. Just on that, what are some unknown unknowns for people, um, terms, concepts? Um, you must see this a lot. Um, the first time, for example, you might mention a pool of assets. Uh, will people say, look, what does that mean? Most people's understanding of a pool is a, is a swimming pool in the backyard. I, do, I dare say most, most which people... Made, which ironically made itself be in the pool. Might form part of the yeah. pool. But, I mean, I think we take for granted yeah. um, and often just assume that people are going to have an understanding or, or knowledge of a lot of um, words and terminology that we use that they just simply don't. So you just have to... Come back to come back to basics and assume that people know nothing about the system, about the courts. I mean, just the fact that we have two different courts mm. in the same building applying mm. the same legislation mm. is so confusing for people to try mm. and understand the concept of disclosure. Mm. I mean, we use that. I use that so many times throughout the day, and yet, how often in in ordinary life would people talk about mm. duty of disclosure? Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's just being able to help people understand those basic terms, but also how standard a lot of the processes are. That it's nothing to be frightened or worried about. Mm. There are processes that the court puts in place that need to be followed to make sure the outcome's fair that we still follow in the process of negotiation. So it's nothing to be frightened about that they've asked for certain information or bank statements or documents about your financial circumstances. This is a proper process that we have to follow and it's standard. So it's, it's not just in your matter, you're not being attacked. So just being able to explain that and put people's minds at ease um, that there is a process to be followed, there are rules that we have to comply with, um, and just making sure that they understand each stage of the process can really help. Mm. Otherwise, if you just say, just meet me at court, and they have no idea what to yeah. expect when they walk into the courtroom, I think it really helps to walk people through mm. what it's going to look like. Mm. What's Where will the judge be sitting? What are they going to say to you? Mm. You know, um, what do you say? What do you wear? But even just going back to those really basic things, I mean, yeah. most people have never set foot inside a courtroom before, and it can be really intimidating. It's interesting, isn't it? I suppose people 
can come with some unknown unknowns and legal practitioners because you're so in it all the time, um, it's possible to also um, lose awareness of how much you know relative to how much the other person does not. I suppose that goes to being um, good at what you guys do is having that, that knowledge and that awareness to be able to share, share information in a way which is easily consumed. Mm. Kate and Anna, uh, thank you so much for your time to come to an end. Um, hopefully, and, and I'm quite confident that there's just so much useful, practical information uh, on the podcast for people who are going through separation and divorce. Uh, thanks again, Anna and Kate, and thanks again to Aubrey Brown for being a part of the Separation God Network. Thanks, thanks so much, Jack. Jack.